Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Welcome again to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. I'm so happy that you are actually going on this journey with me. I really appreciate it. Today, you are going to have such an amazing conversation because I'm speaking to Prof. Savile. I call him Prof. even when we're not in class. Dr. Adrian Savile is the CEO and founder of Canon Asset Managers. Prof, how are you? I'm good. It's great to be with you. I always enjoy spending time with you. Um, how do you unwind? You know, what do you do for fun? Uh, well, I unwound this morning, I guess, a little bit. Yeah. Uh, exercise, uh, trying to stay... Don't rub it in. <laughs> we were just talking about something just happened. I stopped exercising. Okay, yeah. inspire me to go back. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I can inspire, <laughs> but I can share. Um, yes, yeah. And, yeah, you know, just the, the discipline of uh, exercising regularly. Uh, and aside from, I think, the body time that you get, more importantly, the head time that you get. So very often, you know, my sense is your best chance to sort of de-stress, reflect, gather your thoughts is when you are in a gym or in a yoga class or a Pilates class really? or okay. walking or running. I get that any moment. <laughs> everywhere I get inspired. So I, as I said, you are the CEO of Canon Asset Managers, which yeah. is an asset management company. You're also an economist. Yeah, I'm an economist by training. What attracted you to economics? What, was that your favorite subject at school? It was a bit of, a, bit of an accident. Yeah. Um, at, uh, at school, I wouldn't describe myself as uh, an excelling student. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I sort of <laughs> meandered uh, through <laughs> school. <laughs> Thank goodness you managed. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, I found myself uh, at university, uh, signed up for what I suppose would be the usual suspect. Uh, my father is a chartered accountant, and the suggestion was this was going to be a robust, sensible career for me to pursue. Uh, I signed up for a commerce degree, and absolutely nothing uh, about it inspired me <laughs> or exhilarated me. I found it rather... Yeah, dry and uninspiring. Really? But there were components of it that yeah. captured my attention, yeah. uh, including my first year in economics. There was a law component. And people, I think, would describe these as the softer subjects. Mm -hmm. And then f friends, peers at university were doing arts degrees. Mm -hmm. I'll say that very quietly mm -hmm. in case my dad is listening. <laughs> 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 and the arts degrees included you know, language, yeah. uh, sociology, psychology yes. and I would sit in these classes and I was absolutely mesmerized economic history yeah and I think it was economic history more than economics that I okay. fell in love with where economic history tells the story of transformation transition migration uh, from you know industrial revolutions how the history of money which the history of money um, how companies countries societies build and fall. Mm. Um, and I mean, really, that just absolutely intrigued me. And I was very fortunate to have a professor who later became my PhD supervisor, who just absolutely embodied this, uh, this passion and 
he would arrive at a lecture theater and speak for 45 minutes without a script, every single detail he knew, and he would weave you through yeah. these fascinating stories. stories. That's where the love started. Yeah, which, you know, you like that, because, I mean, I didn't do BCom, I did social sciences, majored in psychology, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, this is how you inspired the love of economics to me, even corporate finance, corporate investment, you know. Yeah. So you, you have that. But you also have those six things. You know the, the six things you talk about? The six pack. The six pack. Yeah. You know. So the six pack is very often uh, the two worlds that I live in of yeah. economics and finance. Economics as a professor and finance as uh, a business, uh, uh, as a business venture. Um, I think both of them are treated as uh, intimidating mm. and they are very often sort of hard to access. And if you start talking about either economics or finance, most people shut down. Yeah. And I think that's a tragedy mm. because as citizens, uh, it's our lives. It's, one of the most important components of our individual trajectories is the context in which we live. We live yeah. And if we don't understand what shapes and shifts that mm. context, then we really are victims mm. um, or sort of naive bystanders, passengers. And I don't want to be a passenger. Yeah. I want to be part of the shaping and the shifting. So a large part of my work in, as a professor at Gibbs has been about understanding what builds prosperous countries. Mm. And in that work, uh, to give you the dry part, we've studied uh, data covering 160 countries over 60 years, so that's 10,000 country years of data. And it was in search of what I think is a simple but elegant question. Do countries that build prosperous, inclusive, uh, societies, places that are happy and healthy, yeah. economically, socially, politically, do they have common ingredients? Mm -hmm. The short answer to that is yes, and they have six common things. Yeah. They have high savings and investment rates. The countries start young. In other words, there are more people going into the workforce than going into retirement. Mm -hmm. Education and healthcare, which will probably uh, make immediate sense to the audience uh, to this series that they are open for business, uh, but that they are functionally open. Dysfunctional openness is slavery. Yeah. Functional openness is a win-win relationship, that by you and me engaging, we are each better off. Mm. And then the sixth ingredient, certainly uh, trained as an economist, the search always for the industry is, how do we find best policies, best practice? And this absolutely intrigued me in the work, mm. that what we find is that it's not best policy, but rather policy stability. Mm. Establish the rules for your society, communicate them clearly, put institutions in place. <laughs> this won't be lost on South Africans. Put institutions in place that can hold the line. Yes. And you've got a functional framework yes. for building prosperity. Those are the six things. I must say, I mean, when you shared it, because you were very kind, um, to be part of a leadership uh, development program, and you shared those learnings. With Basara, I mean, yeah. yeah, and it was just like, gosh, why don't people yeah. know this? You know. So if you go to Ethiopia, Costa Rica, uh, Chile, Estonia, choose your country, and you ask, yes. well, how did this happen? It's not a miracle. No. It's a consequence of these six ingredients, and that I think is where South Africa's work sits. And that's where we should be focusing, President. Uh, Ramaphosa, 
That would be Tito good. Tito Mbueni's nailed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, oh, do you want to touch on the new document that's just come out? I thought I did. That was it. He's nailed it. Really? He yeah. captured all that? Because well, I haven't had time to, mm, to read I mean, it. He's got a lot of it. Wow. And look, look to be fair, the NDP also has, yes. has a lot of this. Mm -hmm. The deficit with the NDP is 400-odd pages of spectacular policy and very little evidence of effective implementation. Yes. So it's the implementation that... The fact that we're down to 77 pages with Tito Mbueni, but what he has emphasized, and this is where I think he has nailed it, is he's put it into a time frame, short, medium, long term, and he's put it into, he's described it in the form of implementable policy. This is what we need to do. And there are action points. Yeah. What do you think is distinctive about you? What do you think is your value proposition? Unique value proposition. <laughs> That's awkward. <laughs> yeah. Can I, can, I, yeah. can I ask my, my kids or my wife? <laughs> they will give feedback after my watching kids this. I'll tell you my very bad dad jokes, um, which yeah. I find hilarious. Uh, I hope, and, and perhaps you've, you know, the fact that we are here together um, is some evidence of that. Mm. Is that by having been able to work in industries that change lives, I've been able to have impact. Yeah. If you can make even the smallest changes in financial behavior, if you can shift a deficit family to a surplus family, what I mean by that is if you can get a family that's dissaving 100 rand a month to start saving 100 rand a month, you then establish that as a habit, and that habit trans transfers to children, and then you get the compounding of time. I mean, you actually land up with the most profound impacts uh, over long periods of time. I'll give you a, a, a simple example. Hopefully this doesn't come across as an advert. But yes. at Canon Asset Managers, we build tax-free savings accounts. Tax-free savings accounts, if, yeah. If you are a 45-year-old and you put a 1,000 rand a month into a tax-free savings account, when you hit 65, you will have 2 million rand. Hmm. 1,000 rand a month. That's all. You give it a couple of decades and it compounds up. <clears throat> if, you don't, if you start earlier, not 45, 30, it compounds even further. Uh, it goes to 4 million. If you start even earlier, not 30, try 15, it goes to just over 10 million. And if you start compounding your 1,000 rand a month for your one-year-old child, when that child hits 65, they will have, hold your breath, 45 million rand. Wow. That's in today's prices. Now, you know, for many people, a thousand rand a month simply isn't possible. Yeah. But then take a zero off it, make it a hundred rand a month, or take another zero off it, make it 10 rand a month. Yeah. Just start somewhere. Start somewhere. And you are a value investor. In part. I think I'm, part. I'm probably... Have you evolved? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. nice and rude. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying you've improved from value investor because well, that was the standard. No, I, look, I think value investing is what I'm known for yeah. or described as. And, you know, I'm quite comfortable owning that if, if I can acknowledge that value investing, very often people think value investing is about buying distressed businesses, yes. catching falling knives, going and looking at disasters and hoping for turnaround. I mean, certainly there's, there is a place for that. Yeah. But... And the way I would describe value investing is it has just two ingredients. And so you can probably put a line through the word value and just call this investing. But yeah. the industry wants to 
sort of put us into pigeonholes. So you know, I'm quite comfortable owning that pigeonhole or being put into that pigeonhole. Uh, value investing or investing is about buying good assets at good prices. Yeah. And the good prices is the value part. That it, it, it's easy to find good businesses, good assets. But if you pay up for them, you've just made a bad investment. You've just bought a really good company at a very high price. That's not a good investment. Yeah, yeah. So our definition of investing, value investing, is buy good assets at good prices and then give them two ingredients. Uh, the one is out of your control, mm -hmm. time. So the earlier you get going, the better. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is inside of your control, discipline and determination, dedication, perseverance. Okay. That's a different thing. Yeah. And then, you know, value investing can stretch all the way from individual companies through to countries. And in this environment, in South Africa, if you look at particular companies, I think there's some really interesting uh, opportunities. The banks, the big banks look uh, very attractive, lots of South African industrials. And then globally, China, Japan, uh, even South Africa as a country fits into the attractive oh, box. That's great. What keeps you awake at night? What is of grave concern to you as a human being? Probably uh, two things. Uh, the one is macro and the other is micro. Mm -hmm. The macro is for the country. Uh, how are we doing? Are we on the right path? Um, my answer to that is we are coping. We're not excelling. Yeah. Uh, Could be doing better. We're not Venezuelan. Yeah. Um, we, we're stuttering. And sometimes we stumble, but our work as a country is really cut out for us. And the mood is somber, uh, confidence in the country is low. Yeah. So th that's the one thing that I think keeps certainly me awake and probably us awake yeah. collectively. The and ones that are patriotic and love the country. I don't think yeah, everybody yeah, gets yeah, kept yeah. awake by <laughs> those kinds of concerns. And that, you know, the, the micro thing that keeps me awake is for our individual uh, wellness uh, and well-being, especially our children. Yeah. Uh, Tash and I have got, I, I can say four teenagers because my son turns 13 tomorrow. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday so, in advance, yeah. So we've got four teenagers and their lifespans, given uh, science and medicine, medical advances, their lifespans are comfortably into the hundreds. So their working careers aren't going to finish at that stereotypical 65. Mm. They're possibly going to work into their 80s, 90s. What are they going to do? What will that world look like? How do we prepare them for that? And if they're going to go, to their 80, if they're going to go into their hundreds, I'm probably going to go with Tash into my 80s or 90s. How are we going to fare if retirement age is 65, um, what access to medicine will we have? What will that life look like? You know, are you being sustained or is it really a high quality of life? Yeah. You sound like rather glib things, but yeah. I think they're worth worrying about. Being beyond living, like really enjoying the life. You don't want to just breathe in and out. Mm. Yeah, no, I get that. You want to thrive. Yeah, that's my thing. I love thriving. I thrive <laughs> <laughs> regardless. Um, <laughs> What's the most you thrive on Nurtuk Beach. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen lovely photos of you with, with the dog. dogs on. Yeah, uh, yeah. My friend Kim Hawk, she's <laughs> amazing. I love the dog. What's the most courageous decision you've ever 
take it and, and what motivated you to take it as a business person? I think as an individual, probably some of the they weren't hard to do from a conscious, ethical, moral belief perspective, but they were hard to do in terms of carrying them out was my political activity, political conscience in the 1980s. Uh, it was, that was tough. Uh, were you ostracized? Without question. Um, and it was a hard environment. Uh, and you were young. You was, I was, I was yeah. yeah, and I was a teenager, early university years. I had every conviction that what I was doing was right. Uh, but boy, you know, there was fierce uh, policing and military oppression. Yeah. And the choices for me as a young white male were go to jail or leave the country. Mm. Um, those are tough choices to, uh, to take. And I managed to navigate uh, with that political opposition without either going to jail or leaving the country. Yeah. It was hard, but that wasn't a business decision. I think, to answer your question from a business perspective, can I give two? And the yeah. first was to start my own business 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Building businesses is no joke. Yeah, prof. <laughs> you tell point. me now. <laughs> it's tough. Yeah. Um, and there is no day, month, year that has been easy. That was hard. Uh, We got the company, and now I say we, is I've had fantastic partners, uh, business partners, shareholders over the years who've helped me build the business. But we got to a circumstance uh, three years ago where I'd landed up in the wrong place. My business was in the wrong home. And I could either sort of stay there quietly uh, and exist. Yes which I've just complained about. I don't want to breathe in and out. Uh, I want to thrive. And so in my late 40s, I had to take the decision to pull my business away Mm. and start again. And this is this is tough. Yeah. When you've got family commitments, when you are not early career and you've got sort of all the optionality and agility that you would have in your 20s, that if mistakes happen, they come with far, far higher cost. And I was incredibly fortunate to find the partnership of uh, Yapi van Niekerk, uh, who is the head of Bidvest Financial Services. Mm-hmm. And I joined him two years ago with Canon Asset Managers becoming part of the group. And it has been the most extraordinary two years. I think it's the most fun I've ever had in business. Yeah. But, you see, but it was hard to take that I decision. Think hey? The wisdom I'm getting there is sometimes we are so caught up in fear that yeah. we... You, you kind of hold back the blessings that are due to you because the minute you let go of that, look at what you were exposed to. Now you're having the best life of your life. Yeah, if, look, life if, of your life. Huh? Life of, oh, sorry, <laughs> life of my life. If, if fear was a guide, yeah. uh, I, would, I would have sort of yes. hunkered down, stuck it out. Mm. And, you know, not to be too glib, it was okay. Mm. But I wasn't in, in my zone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that, that, sweet, that sweet spot is very important. You yeah. said there's a second one? I thought I told you to. The first was to start my business. Yeah, and then the right uh, to You know, which was, okay. it would have been much easier to take a job, you know, in the early 1990s, mid-1990s, yeah. you know, off we go into 
investment banking or asset management, uh, the path is somehow, you know, seems or looks or feels easier. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We've never got that parallel experiment. Yeah. I can't wind back the clock yeah. and try it all again. But that was hard. Hey? Yeah. Now, I know the feeling as a black female, African female, my life in corporate could be more lucrative than it is now. But yeah, yeah there are things that are just But so you're important. in your element. Yes, I thrive yeah. and the impact that I'm making. What's your view of the phenomenon of white privilege and how does this concept interact in your life? Is there a place in this interview that we can say, no, this is not an interview, this is a conversation. It's a conversation, hey. prof. <laughs> so that, that yes. I can say, awkward. <laughs> Are you feeling awkward? <laughs> we have a friend in the room, which is our prof's dog. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, white privilege, uh, is, it, you know, is, is it a phenomenon? Without question, um, you know, but I, you know, I sort of immediately want to start apologizing, but make absolutely no mistake, I was born into a circumstance of privilege. Uh, I, relative to a black male my age, uh, the state spent 40 times the amount of money on my education, my health care, and I was raised through a a robust education and healthcare system. That's incredible privilege. Uh, my father, uh, and I think as a consequence of his, in part, as a consequence of his race, had a strong career, good income, and he could provide beyond, you know, even more than I got from you know, my white privilege uh, uh, growing up in apartheid South Africa. So yes, uh, without question, uh, privilege exists. The, the, the but that I want to put in is when I think we start getting caught up in this and using this as an explainer for everything that happens from here. So I've seen people start with the most incredible privilege and squander it. I've seen people start with the most incredible privilege and rub it in others' faces. I've seen people start with absolutely no privilege. And one of, one of my favorite examples of this is the cohort that I had the extraordinary opportunity of looking after at the University of Natal called the EMEC group. Mm -hmm. And out of this EMEC group have come people who were born into, uh, well, let's give them a, a handle historically disadvantaged, A-grade students born into uh, tough economic circumstances. Uh, and I had the, here I had the privilege, the white privilege of using my education advantage to help them through university. Yeah. And those MX students, uh, Andila Kumala yeah. is one of them, the builder of power. Our star in South Africa, yeah. <laughs> Ernest Quinda. Uh, who's building a fantastic career uh, in finance uh, and uh, corporate finance. Uh, uh, Pilisiwe Sabia, mm. who was the, went on to become the CEO of MTN Cameroon. These were people born into absence of privilege, disadvantage, and look what they've done. So we can turn it around. You know, it's how we it energize. And, and if I've got privilege, yes. I can share it. How do you sh uh, uh, kind of share that story with other white males who seem to think when you share, 
they get deprived instead of thinking you also thrive just as much as I thrive. I'm a firm believer in win-win, that functional collaboration, sharing, cooperation, that if we can find each other uh, and, and if we can connect and integrate, then our prospect of building something much stronger than the individual yeah. parts. Otherwise, we're trapped. Yeah, and also just to make our country stronger, I always think if more of us are prosperous, the more our economy will be prosperous. So to move it then from individual describers to country describers, show me a country that has got rich by building walls. I love everything you are. But what is your Achilles heel? What do you think holds you back? Or how do you manage it so that it does not impact your success? I suspect that like many entrepreneurs or people with entrepreneurial DNA, yeah. my Achilles heel is shiny penny syndrome. <laughs> it reads. Uh, that adventure excites me doing new things uh, thrills me. So I've got to manage that. I've got to put clear boundaries in that discipline myself. That yeah. Look, that looks exciting, but it's not in, you know, it's not in the sweet spot. Yeah. We're going to let that one sail by. Yeah. So I think that's an Achilles heel that I have to manage. The yes. other is saying yes when I should be saying no. It's so much easier to say, you know, yes, I'll do this, yes, I'll do this. But if you say yes to everything, you've actually, you actually can't be your strongest self. Mm. So you've got to be able to say no. And I think that's another vulnerability that I'm aware of. Yes. Achilles heel. I'm so happy that most times you've said yes when I've requested (laughs) your help. Because honestly, Busara Leadership Partners would not be where it is without human beings like you. And the, the yes thing, I think, shouldn't be lost either in that there is, a, uh, there is an undertone to this saying yes, because that's the work that Tash does, my wife, mm. where she's the yes. CEO of the Youth Employment Service, yeah. the Yes Which is doing a great job at the moment. They've just yeah. hit this week 21,000 jobs wow. that they've established since November of last year. Wow. It's absolutely extraordinary. I mean, that's the, so, Less than a year. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes you want to say yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think I get an, uh, is that a free advert? Yes. <laughs> no, the thing is that Chris is doing great work for She's the country. Incredible. Otherwise, I wouldn't allow that plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, your area of focus is competitiveness of companies, industries and countries. Mm. What do you think South Africa is uh, not maximizing in terms of its comparative edge, comparative edge mm. amongst the emerging markets? There's a lot South Africa can maximize. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe without answering your question, there are things that South Africa is minimizing. Yes. And we've almost, I think we almost hold a, a world trophy in this, in foot shooting, um, that we, we squander uh, opportunity. And... South Africa, if we go back to the six ingredients that we touched on earlier, South Africa has the capacity, the structure, historically to grow at about four, four and a half percent. That's what we would call our growth potential. Over that four and a half 
percent potential, we've actually delivered closer to two. So about halfway there. Um, more recently, that growth potential has slipped into the 3% category, and we've got into the habit of delivering one, one and a half percent. So again, sort of about halfway there. So what are we not uh, harvesting or harnessing is, I think, the power of the collective. And the power of the collective is to establish a unified vision, a common narrative, a sense that we are in this together, and that the only way that we can do this is collectively. Yeah. And that then builds cohesion, coherence, uh, a sense of purpose, uh, and, and confidence. Yeah. And I think that is where we have lost our way, that it's, well, if you're gaining, it's at my expense, yes. and you're against me, and I believe this, you believe that, we don't speak a common language, we don't hold a set of common views. And we need to be very, very careful here because you push this too far and you're in the world of nationalism. Hmm. So, you know, there, I think there is a, an important line at which you've crossed the boundary, the barrier from common purpose to nationalist sentiment. We do not want the latter, but we want a collective, a common purpose. That's, I think, where we have squandered. But also, you know, when, you, when I look at some of the relationships we have across race groups, across gender, across age, I feel the privilege of associating with those people and understanding if we harness that, we'll be amazing. Most of the time in this country, we always like fighting. We don't trust this race, we don't trust yeah. this party, you don't, you know, if we could just like overcome that. So that, I think you've nailed it with the word trust. Yeah. Because it is only through trust that we can get into a common uh, and joined initiative. Yeah. If I don't trust you, I'm always going to be looking over my shoulder, you know, what's in it for her? How is she gaming me? Second guessing every intention yeah. you have. So that trust has to be built. Yeah. Um, you know, September is usually, um, it's not usually, it is Heritage Month in mm. South Africa. What would you like your legacy to be? Not that we ever have control of that, mm. because by the time you get to the end of your life, it could be different. But I mean, what's something that will please you when you look down at your life from on high? Uh, I, I guess when you sort of gasping your final breaths, uh, if you have the chance for reflection, mm. um, Always imagine we're going to die in a hospital bed, right? <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> or in your own bed at home. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you think back on your life, you know, are you going to remember the car that was in your drive? Yeah. Uh, or are you going to remember the holiday with your children, uh, with your family, with your wife? Yeah. Are you going to remember, you know, the the music shows that you went to, the musical instrument you learned to play, the books you read, or are you going to remember a bonus or a paycheck or yeah. you know, a, a long weekend working in the office? Uh, so I think you know, from, from a legacy perspective, looking back at not what I've left but how I've conducted myself, I hope, I believe, I'll be able to look back and say I conducted myself with honour, um, with purpose and by giving.
Yeah. Uh, and maybe one of the biggest gifts that I can give, I take it as a, a, a real compliment that you describe me as a good teacher because if, if Have I'm you a, won the Excellence Award <laughs> since 2007? Can we add that? Yes. To be able to, to teach and to build and to leave a group of people, a classroom, richer for having given your time and shared your experiences and your perspective and your knowledge. Yeah. I think that's one of the best gifts you can give. And I would be, yeah. I would be thrilled if that was the legacy that I leave. But also for me, it's the passion. You have this passion for the country, which is really, it's, it's heartwarming. Well, I think that, 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 that that's what feeds me, you know, so much in the classroom yeah. is, <clears throat> you know, I'm not there to tell you, uh, heaven forbid, how a, a supply and a demand curve work. Um, yeah. <laughs> no one's ever seen these. Yes. Um, but if I tell you about infant mortality and life expectancy and uh, access to, to health care, uh, that matters. Yeah, because that's our life. Yeah. In closing, what wisdom would you want to leave us with? Do it with your heart. Um, and if you can... If you can do it with your heart, with belief, with purpose, I think you wake up happy. Yeah. You wake up knowing that even if the day is hard, it's going to be good. Yes. And maybe two things that never take for granted. Uh, time. It only goes in one direction. Yes. And health. Because when it's gone... Uh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, if those were sort of three fundamental principles that I would put into the pot of if you can recognize you know, your well-being, your health, that time travels in one direction, take the opportunity, use it wisely, and act with purpose, conviction, belief. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. And it's thank you be for being you. you. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to be anyone else. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I love the you you are. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Swami. Please also like, follow, and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it if you could rate and review as well. Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.